Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Gatorade first aired their Be Like Mike ad in August of 1991. It's widely considered one of the best sports commercials ever made. Did you want to be like Mike? Lead teacher Jeff Norris brings us this Global Spotlight sermon entitled The Heart of God, which covers Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 12. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Jay serves in Berlin, Germany, and so he will read first in English and then secondly in German. Good morning, Perimeter Church. The scripture reading today is from Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Und jetzt Deutsch nach Luther. Danach sah ich und siehe eine große Schar, welche niemanden zählen konnte, aus allen Heiden und Völkern und Sprachen, vor dem Stuhl stehend und vor den Lahm angetan mit weißen Kleidern und Palmen in ihren Händen, schrien mit großer Stimme und sprachen, heil sei dem, der auf dem Stuhl sitzt, unserem Gott und dem Lahm. Und alle Engel standen um den Stuhl und um den Ältesten und die vier Tiere und fielen vor dem Stuhl auf ihr Angesicht und beteten Gott an und sprachen Amen, Lob und Ehre und Weisheit und Dank und Preis und Kraft und Stärke sei unserem Gott von Ewigkeit zu Ewigkeit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jay. Let's read aloud together our prayer of illumination. Father, when your voice thunders, it breaks the cedars, flashes forth like fire, and shakes the wilderness. This morning, by that same voice, would you break our hard hearts, shaking the wilderness of our affections and burning away whatever is not of you. Give birth to new life in us, fresh faith, fresh repentance, fresh obedience, and fresh love. Amen and amen. I love that prayer. May he thunder this morning with his voice through his word and in our time together. Before I lead us into where we're headed in terms of the scriptures and set that up for us, I'm just going to mention that I wrote a, a short letter that you can find on perimeter.org Norris. And uh, there's a number of resources that I've put on there over the past couple of years from previous series and whatnot. But I've written a short letter, won't take you but a couple of minutes to read. It's just a bit of my heart for how we as a church can be a church engaged with global missions. 
in the ways in which we can take steps forward to be about what God is about in terms of the nation. So check that out when you have time this week. You know, I'm reminded of when I was a kid. One of the greatest desires that I had growing up was to be like my dad. It's very common for little boys to desire that, to desire to be like dad. And for me, it was, it was one of those things where in the little town that I grew up, um, my dad was a bit of the hometown hero because at that point, he had been the only one that had grown up in that town and left to go two hours south to this place called Tuscaloosa and play football for this guy named Bear Bryant. And in small town Alabama, if that happens, you are immediately royalty. And so after graduating, playing in, in Alabama there and uh, graduating and going into college coaching for a number of years, the Lord led my dad and my mom back to the, the town that he was raised in to raise me and my sister. And it was an incredible childhood for me. And I had uh, and do have a tremendous mother as well. But there's something about a little boy wanting to be like his dad, right? So I wanted to play football like my dad played football. I wanted to wear his number the, that he wore on his jersey. And, and in every way, I just found myself watching his every move and seeking to emulate him. And it was, it was the greatest of compliments to me whenever someone would tell me that I reminded them of my dad. I thought it was just so awesome as, that they would say that. Now, it wasn't just sports. That was where it probably showed the most, but it was really anything. You know, if my dad mowed the grass, I wanted to mow the grass. If my dad wore a coat and tie, which he did. Once he had moved back there and gotten out of college coaching, he became an insurance agent. And, um, and he would wear, a, in the 80s and 90s, wore a coat and tie every day to the office. So what did I want to do a lot of times? I wanted to dress up like my dad. If he told funny jokes, I wanted to tell funny jokes. And the list goes on and on because there was, this, there was this emulation going on, this watching him and seeking to copy him and to be like him. And we might even say, to use language of the scripture, to image him. Now, for some of us listening to this, this doesn't resonate because your circumstances weren't like that. You didn't have a father that you wanted to copy, to emulate, to be like. So perhaps it was someone else. Maybe it wasn't a parent, your mom or your dad, but it was someone that you were around a good bit, another family member perhaps, a friend, a, a parent of a friend. Maybe it's even, you know, for me growing up, we were inundated with the Be Like Mike commercials, Be Like Michael Jordan, and so maybe that was who you were trying to emulate. But in essence, we are a people that by nature watch others and seek to be like them, to adopt their mannerisms, to take upon ourselves their likes, their dislikes, even to an extent their personalities and desires. And the language of Scripture tells us that that's, by, uh, that's, in, that's, that's purposeful. It's not by mistake. Because we were created, as, as Genesis tells us, we were created by God, and we were created to image him, to be like him. There at the very beginning of the Bible, we get this in Genesis 1.26, and when God declares that he's going to make male and female, and he says, and let us, a hint at the, uh, the Trinity there, one God existing in three persons, let us make them, man and woman, in our image. The implications and the direct commandments of God were that you would exist, man and woman, male and female, that you would exist 
in such a way that you would image him, that you would be like God in all the earth. That you would reign and rule over creation in a way that would mimic God's reign and rule over all things. And so the language there at the end of, chap- of chapter 21 of, of Genesis is that, that we would have dominion, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and have dominion over the earth. So in other words, God's given us this vision from the very beginning that the earth would be filled of his image, people who are looking to him and copying him seeking to be like him. And we could say this, we could say to share his heart. That what's true of his heart would be true of our heart. So as we watch just human nature be such that we would want to emulate those who are influential in our lives, how much more is it true of God? But as many of us know, familiar with the story, it didn't take very long for that image to be marred to the relationship with God to be broken, to where our purpose in life shifted from imaging him and all the earth to selfishly seeking to image ourselves in such a way that it would be about our glory and not his. As Adam and Eve fell dead in the garden, we fell dead as well with them as we inherited their nature. And in so doing, inheriting their nature, we still image God, but in a very shattered glass in a mirror type way where we can see little specks of God in humanity, but by and large, we struggle deeply to image him. And this is the good news of Jesus. This is where the good news of Christ comes into the story, where it's through Christ and Christ alone, no other way that God has provided, that we would, yes, be forgiven of our sin, And yes, that death would be conquered in our place through the death and resurrection of Jesus for us. And in so doing that, in rescuing us from our sins and reconciling us back to the Father, here's what the language of the New Testament says time and time again, that we would be like him, that we would be made again into his image. We are born again, as it were, spiritually, so that we would be made like God to image him like we were originally intended to do. And the only way the image of God is restored in us, in its fullness, in the way that God originally designed, is through faith in Christ. It's a big, significant part of the gospel story, the good news of grace in Jesus, that we begin to understand again our purpose Our purpose is to image him. So in the same way that I said I wanted to be like my dad, we we being made new in Jesus, we begin to go, I want to be just like my heavenly father. I want to know him. I want to study him. In a sense, yes, I studied my earthly dad. I watched his every move. I listened to what he said. I, I learned his characteristics. I, I wanted to be like him. And so the, the call of the Christian life is that now that we're in right relationship with God through faith in Jesus and this image is being restored, who should we be? Well, in part, we should be a people who study God. That's what theology means, the, the study of God. So that we can know what is he like? 
What, what are his characteristics? What does he love and what does he hate? Because I want to love the same things he loves. And I want to hate the same things he hates. And, and I want to be like him in his personality and his attributes and his characteristics. And I want to image him in all the earth. And so where I'm getting at is that that's true across the board in all the various facets of who God is. Think of a diamond that we turn and we learn a little bit more each time we turn it. The beauty is light hits it in a different way. And as we study God, each time we're focusing on a different aspect of who he is and we go, wow, wow, glorious, beautiful, amazing, majestic. And we turn it and this time, this morning, we're looking at it from the standpoint of his heart for the nations. That the way the light is hitting the attributes and the character and the nature and the being of who God is that we want to study this morning is to turn it just a little bit to say God's heart is for the nations. And if I am being made like him, I'm being made into his image, remade through Christ in me, then I share that heart. It's not an option, actually. It's not a God's heart is for the nations, and I'll decide if I like that or not. And if I adopt that part of who he is for me and my heart. No, no, no. It's if Christ is doing his work in you, you become like him. And one of the facets of your heart reflects, mirrors, images, the facet of his heart about the nations coming to him. The gospel would go forth in all of its glory, magnifying Jesus in all of his grace so that people from every tongue and tribe and nation would know him in a saving way. 87 times, 87 times in the scriptures, phrases like this are used. All nations, all peoples, all mankind, all creation, every creature, every knee, every tongue, every language, the world. Those phrases are used 87 different times. In essence, we are to pursue and possess the heart of God, and this is part of his heart. And so let's look at it. I want to do something that will be uh, an overview. We, we think of it like the commonly used phrase, we're going to do a 30,000-foot view. We're going to fly over, and we're going to try to pull a thread from Genesis to Revelation very quickly, which means that if we were boots on the ground, if we were at ground level, we would spend a great deal of time that we don't have together this morning to go in much more detail. So what I'm about to do with you is skip a lot of stuff, but I hope you get the idea. You'll get the major theme, I believe. And what I wanna pull is that thread of the kingdom of God for all peoples and all nations from the beginning of the Bible and the beginning of God's uh, uh, history with human, human mankind all the way to the end of where he shows us what we had read for us just a moment ago by Jay, where we will end and what it will look like. So at the beginning, we begin in that first book of the Bible, Genesis. And towards the beginning of the story, we're introduced to this pagan man who didn't know God at all, who had spent the majority of his life in this wilderness of a land called Ur, which is modern-day Iraq. God, for no reason that we can understand other than just God's design and purpose and sovereignty and grace, he chooses Abram 
And he says something to Abram, and he pulls him out of the land of Ur, and he sends him to this new land. And he says this in verse 3 of chapter 12. He says, in you, Abram, all the families, and that word families is in the original language getting at peoples and nations. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's the first promise that God gives that would be quoted many, many other times in the Bible. And I, I, I highlight one here where the Apostle Paul is connecting dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and the blood of Christ. And he's saying, this has been God's purpose and design from the beginning, that there would be one who would come. It would be through the offspring of Abraham that all nations would be blessed. He re-emphasizes this a few chapters later when he's continuing to press in this covenant with Abram and accompanying it with the sign of circumcision, as we've talked about before, where he says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So God is going to the extent to even change his name to represent his calling, a father of many nations. And what he's saying is he's saying, Abraham, in you, meaning in your offspring, in your seed, in your line, all the way down through the ages, there will be one who comes. And through him, through you, and eventually through him, all nations, every people, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will be blessed by the seed, by the offspring of you, Abraham. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Yes, that was both... Uh, explicit to Israel that he would have Isaac and Isaac would have Jacob and Jacob would have 12 sons and those 12 sons would be the tribes of Israel and would become a multitude of tribes and nations there, one nation, Israel. But it's more than that. It's bigger than that. It's this big picture that it would be through one of those tribes, Judah, that one would come and through him all nations would be blessed. He, again, tells Isaac, the son of Abraham, the same promise in Genesis 22, he says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall all, uh, shall all the, and through your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Here's what I want you to tap into. And if you're just not getting anything from this part, just take this. God's desire from the beginning of his interaction with mankind was that all nations would be blessed, not just one. That, that Israel, the people that he chose for himself in the Old Testament, would be a people that would, that would be a light to the nations. That they would actually be outward facing. They didn't listen. They disobeyed and they became inward facing and all about themselves. But the original design of God and purpose of God was that they'd be a light to the nations. And as we'll read in just a moment, that the foreigners would come into Israel and know the one true God. So that they would await the promise await the offspring. They know he's coming. And they're looking through, they're looking through gra uh, a glass that is, that is frosted glass. It's, it's blurry, but they know. I, can kinda, I know it's coming. I know he's coming. But now we know who he is. We see through glass that is clean and pure, and we see the cross, and we know his name is Jesus, and we know how redemption and reconciliation comes only through him for all peoples of all times and all nations and places. It's in him that all nations will be blessed. Fast forward to 1 Kings. Solomon is dedicating the temple, the long-awaited temple of God that David, his father, wanted to build. And Solomon is building it. 
And he's praying this illustrious, grand prayer to the Lord. And in it, he has this statement in, eight, in uh, 1 Kings 8.60. He says that all the peoples of the earth may know the Lord is God. There is no other. Even in the dedication of the temple and the prayer that Solomon prays, he's, he's saying, even in this temple that will house the presence of God, where the presence of God will dwell in the Holy of Holies, that it's ultimately pointing to this one true God that all nations will come. That there is no other. A couple centuries later, Isaiah the prophet is prophesying and God's people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, have not been obedient to God and they have chased after other gods and Isaiah, God is uh, warning them through Isaiah. And he's telling them that judgment is coming, but even in the midst of the judgment that Isaiah is pronouncing, there's, there's a lot of little nuggets of hope in his, in, all throughout the book of Isaiah and his prophecy. Where he says, look, judgment's coming because of your sin and because you won't worship me, the one true God. But there's going to be a remnant, and in that remnant, the seed will come. And you will still be a light to the nations. Listen to what he says. I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. When the church was being established many centuries later, we have the account of the early church in the book of Acts in the New Testament. This is one of the verses that was quoted right there in Acts 13, 47, as if to say it's happening. The nations are coming. They're coming to Jesus. Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. And the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be, ser- be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. For those of you that are familiar with the, with the Bible, you may recognize that last sentence. This is the sentence that Jesus quotes when he goes into the temple to turn over the tables. Because he's so angry because the house of the Lord, the place of worship, the presence of God has been turned in not to a place of worship, but to a place of commerce. Not a place where people go to praise the name of the Lord, but a place where people go to be paid, to make money. And Jesus says, this is terrible. This is not at all what the design of this temple was. And he turns over the tables and he says, as the Lord said, this will be a house, my house will be a house of prayer. But the context of that, you may not have known that when Jesus quotes that, he's quoting from Isaiah 56. And the context is that the foreigners, those who aren't Israelites, are coming to the presence of God. They're coming to the temple. They're coming to where God dwells so that they be made, may be made new in him and through him. We get to the New Testament and Jesus has atoned for us once and for all. He has become for us the the final, the last, the full sacrifice. Once and for all, the Lamb of God. He's lived the perfect life, the standard of obedience that we couldn't, and he's taken to the cross himself in our place. To once and for all break down the barrier that exists between God and man, which is sin and death. When he cries his last on the cross, something incredible happens there in the temple, the veil that separates the holy of holies where God's presence is and then everything else where people are is ripped in two as if to signify, or it does signify, that now through Christ, through faith in him, all have access 
unhindered access to the presence of God through faith in the long-awaited and promised Messiah through whom all nations will be blessed. And he goes to the grave and he conquers the greatest of enemies, death itself, the very penalty of sin, the one that hangs over us, the one that we fear the most, and he defeats it for us so that if we are united to him by faith, we too have that same victory over death. And who is the invitation for? It's for all. For all nations, all peoples, all tongues, all tribes, all languages, all ethnicities. The, the Greek word of nations is ethnos. That people from everywhere, from across the globe, would know the Lord and be like him. Just like he designed us to be in the very beginning. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, Right before he ascends into heaven, he says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Similarly, in Acts 1.8, Jesus says to the apostles gathered in the upper room, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Apostle Paul is teaching the Philippian church. And he's helping them understand the nature of Jesus as, as a humble servant who came to give his life as a ransom for many. And in the context of describing who Christ is and what he has done for us, he gives us a little glimmer, a little, a little picture of what will be true. What Jesus has accomplished for us, Philippians 2, 10 and 11, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then we get to Revelation, the, the passage we had read for us just a moment ago. God is so good and kind to give a revelation to the apostle John. And he gives him these pictures, these images of what it's going to be like when Christ has returned and he has once and for all put sin under his feet and crushed the serpent as God said he would in Genesis 3.15 when sin was just minutes old and uh, the victory is fully ours through Christ and sin is no more and everyone is gathered around the throne worshiping King Jesus and what's that going to look like and who's going to be there? John tells us, God tells us. After this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There's some imagery in here that we get to connect the dots on, that the only other time in the Bible that we get this picture of God's people holding holding these branches, these palm branches, is when he's going into Jerusalem to be killed. Palm Sunday, as we call it, the Sunday before Easter. And they're declaring in that moment, Hosanna, praise be to the one and only Savior. But they don't get it at that point. 
They're not understanding that he's actually coming in riding on a donkey, on a colt, so that he would die for the sins of the world, of people from all countries and nations and tribes and tongues and languages. And now we get a picture in Revelation that of a throng greater than we could ever even begin to count. As far as the eye could see, this time worshiping him, not because we think that he's coming in to save us from Rome like in the first time, but this time we're waving the palm branches with every tribe and tongue throughout all of creation, and we're doing it with full hearts, understanding fully that he came not to conquer Rome but to conquer sin. And that he has returned by this point in time, by the time of the vision of John, that he has returned and all things have been put under his feet. And there is no sin anymore. And we will declare his praises for the rest of history, which really doesn't exist anymore. It's called eternity. And this is the picture that he gives us. Which means, what about now? If we know that is going to happen and we know what it will look like, then what we do now carries with it such hope. Our missionary endeavors are not, even if they are fruitless, at least in the way that it seems to us, they're not fruitless. We, we, don't, we don't have to create missionary work. We get to discover it. We get to step into it. We get to walk with the Lord as he uses us to bring the nations into himself. So no matter where we go, as John Piper has famously said, it doesn't matter where we go, we know that in that place, God has his people. And we get to just jump into the journey with him, the journey toward Revelation 7. You see, the heart of God one of those facets of the heart of God is the nations. Every tongue, every tribe, every people. God's heart is a generous heart, as you heard Brian say a moment ago. A generous heart. How do we know this? We know it in a myriad of ways. But just think of the most famous verse in the Bible that most everyone knows, even if you're not in church or around church, you've heard of John 3.16. For God so loved who? The world. That he did what? That he gave. Gave his one and only son. That whosoever, meaning people from everywhere, whoever, whosoever believes in him will not perish. That's not physical death. That's spiritual death. That's dying away from God, not embracing his one and only son that would result in, in eternity separated from him in hell. Will not perish, but will have eternal life with him in the new heavens and the new earth for all of time. For God so loved the world that he gave. So we have to ask ourselves the question, if this is God's heart, is it ours? Am I imaging him in that way? Am I, am I seeking to be like him? Am I watching his every move? Am I emulating him in such a way to where I would say, yes, oh God, make me like you. Give me your heart. That I would long to see the nations come to you. Let me give you four practical ways in which you can be engaged in taking the good news of Jesus and his kingdom to the nations. First, very simply, go. Go there. 
We partner with a number of countries all throughout the world. We'd love for you to go. It would be my desire that every single one of you, if you are physically able, that you would prayerfully consider going to one of the places that we go. You heard me, for those who have been around for a little while, you heard me envision the church to the 300 dream, which is that by the year 2052, that we would have developed 100, by God's grace and his power, 100 global partnerships. Our desire is that we would be a church that more than ever is going. We have vision trips that we, go, that we take to certain countries, and these are for you to develop a vision for the world, to see what God is doing outside of here. God is doing a great work here, and we do a ton of work by his grace here locally. But I am convinced that one of the best things that we can do as followers of Christ is get away from here sometimes. Get out of our bubble, go to other places because what happens when we just stay here is that we lose perspective. We lose perspective. Now listen, I'm not, we have our own challenges here, absolutely. Please don't hear me saying that we don't. But we also get lured into thinking that we're being persecuted in some ways that we're really not because then we get out of here and we go to other countries where brothers and sisters in Christ really are getting persecuted and we go, oh, oh God, forgive me. And yes, it causes us to say thank you for blessing us so much as the church in America, but Lord, would you do a work here in this country, in this place, in this time where brothers and sisters in Christ are daily risking their lives to follow you? Would you give me right perspective as, as to what the real battle is? The real battle. Because our battle is not against flesh and blood, it's against the princes and the powers of the air the principalities of the air. This is, this is not a joke in God's mind that we would not be a people who sit on our hands and get complacent with what we have here and not realize what's going on in the world around us and go there and be a people who take the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Because reality is people are perishing all around us. Here, yes, locally, but throughout the world. How will you give? Secondly, where will you go? How will you give? This is certainly financially, yes, and, and this church is the most generous church I've ever known of. And so how can we continue to give? And yes, financially, but of, of ourselves. Each of us have a gift, at least one spiritual gift if you're a follower of Christ. How can you use your gifts to go and serve and be? the hands and the feet of Jesus and the voice of Jesus in places all throughout the world. If you can't go, not everyone can, how can you give financially so that others can go? And that leads me to the next one, send. Send is more specific in nature. I want you to think about maybe perhaps there's someone that you know in this church who would love to go to certain countries that we partner in and to different places that we want to eventually go, and they want to go, but they don't have the means to go there. But you do, but you can't go. But you can send someone. You can sponsor someone. You can get behind them in a way that says, look, I would love to send you there, and I'm with you. I'm with you financially as we partner. I'm with you in prayer, and that's the last one, pray. It's the most important one. I don't just throw that out because it's what we're supposed to say. It really is the most important one. The work of the kingdom going forward is done primarily on our knees. When will we pray? 
where we designate a time, perhaps weekly, where we, we say, look, this is my time every single week where I'm going to pause and I'm going to pray for the nations. You can go on our website, go to the global outreach part of our website, and you can see, you'll eventually see on there the number of countries that we partner in and that we do, we're currently doing work in. You can see what's going on there and how you can pray and how you can be a part and even opportunities to go. Let me give you a very brief, very brief, and certainly not thorough snapshot of just 2022 of what you gave and what it accomplished throughout the nations. Perimeter gave over $1.5 million in 2022 to Global Outreach. And that has helped establish a number of things. It impacted 27 countries last year through Life on Life, Missional Discipleship, and Global Outreach. Last year, we held 16 International Life on Life, Missional Discipleship trainings. And just to highlight one country, we could do this with many of them. There were 90 new churches being trained in Brazil alone. We currently support 50 missionary families or individuals throughout the world. This is more on the side of the finances, but this is you. This is what you've given financially, but this is what you have given of yourselves. Lives are being changed all over the world because of your generosity. Let me give you another snapshot of why it's so important for us to be engaged in this endeavor. I am convinced, and I hope you would know that I am convinced, given that I serve in the role that I do for this church, but I am convinced that Jesus is the only Savior of the world. He is Lord. It's by him and in him and through him and only him that salvation comes. And that there are people all over this earth, as much as it breaks our heart, there are people all over this world who are perishing without him. And Jesus said, go into all the nations. And I want to do that. I want you and I to partner together in being about that so that more may know the name of Jesus, repent, believe, and come into saving faith with him and know the power of his kingdom in them and through them that flourishing may occur to his glory. I picked six cities at random. A couple of these were actually, we have partners in. Just to give you an idea of why the need is so great. Istanbul, Turkey, once a thriving haven, even an epicenter for Christianity in the fourth and fifth centuries. Now there are only 12%, or sorry, 12 Protestant churches in Istanbul. Those 12 churches are trying to, evangelical churches are trying to reach 14.8 million people. Buenos Aires, Argentina, less than 6% of people there identify as evangelical Christians. Population 15.4 million. Paris, France. Paris, along with most of all of Europe, is now considered post-Christian. Although 65% of French people identify as Christian, less than 5% attend a church, and less than that identify as evangelical Christian. When I use evangelical, don't think all kinds of presuppositions. Just think people who would say Jesus is the only way, the Savior of the world, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. 11 million people in Paris. Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, population 4.2 million. No public churches. Osaka, Japan, 0.4% of the Japanese population identifies as evangelical Christians. Population in Osaka alone is 20.4 million. 
Athens, Greece, 0.28% uh, of Greece's population identifies as evangelical. In Athens, the population in one city there is 3 million. We could go on and on and on. The need for gospel-believing, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches is so great. One of our partners that I want to highlight just in the little bit of time we have left is uh, I had lunch on Thursday of this week with one of our partners in Poland, Andrew Gorski. Andrew's sitting down here by Brian. God's doing a great work in Poland right now. He has been for many years. And as we got lunch together on Thursday, I asked Andrew, what are, you, what are you excited about? What's God doing in Poland? And he said, you know, it's, it's through a tragic means and one that we certainly wouldn't have longed for or wanted. But through this war with Ukraine, we, as we well know, there's lots of Ukrainian refugees coming into Poland. Millions. And the Polish evangelical church that up until this war was splintered and at odds with one another across denominational lines, Andrew and others have been praying for years that God would unite the church, and that's happening. They're being united together to be the hands and the feet and the voice of Jesus to these people. So many families, so many broken families coming out of Ukraine, moms with their kids because the dads and husbands have to stay in country, are coming across the border and they have nothing, and they have nowhere to go and nothing to eat. And Polish people, and all Polish people, but the church is shining in Poland right now. As they take these families in, as they love them, share the gospel with them, encourage them. Pray for revival in Poland, that it would spill over into Ukraine. 0.2%, 0.2% of the Polish population identifies as evangelical Christian. But look at this opportunity that God's providing. Just one of the many examples of what he's doing there. Watch this video. Four years ago, God gave us a vision that one day Poland, the Polish church would be united would collaborate, would work with each other, would bless each other. And you know what? God has been at work. God has been at work like we have never seen before in this area of unity. Just after four years, Evangelical Poland is now the largest interdenominational collaboration movement of pastors, leaders, and churches in Poland. We live here in the, in the area of Western Poland in the city of one million people, city of Poznań. There are 20 churches here, 20 Evangelical churches, and only three have buildings. Five other churches have been looking for a new place for years and they couldn't find one. In the whole area where 10 million people live, there's no single conference, Christian conference center here in the western part of Poland. Where people could come, where people could be equipped, people could be encouraged, where pastors, leaders could be trained to plant new churches, to disciple others, trained for evangelism. So there's a huge need to find and to have a place like this that would serve the entire church that would serve the church that wants to collaborate, that wants to bless each other. And we have found the right location near Poznań and right of the freeway between Berlin and Warsaw. This will be the place where leaders will grow through trainings, equipping, retreats, summer camps, and other meetings. Two million Ukrainian refugees are living in Poland. Many of them need skills, need to learn Polish language. This place will also serve the refugees. There will be trauma training, well, there will be counselor training, we will train them in Polish language and also skills so they can find a job and live their life until they can go back home. 
This place will also serve as a home for Amazing Grace Local Church, which has been planted three years ago and has been growing since. In this area here, there's 100,000 people live here in the southern part of Poznan, and there's no single evangelical church here. So the point is, God is opening doors. The, the images you saw there of that building is an old hotel that's not being used anymore that Andrew and his team have the opportunity to buy through donations from this church and other churches to be able to house Ukrainian refugee families that have nowhere to go and nowhere to stay, to be able to train pastors and do evangelism training and theological training, uh, to be able to have retreats. And there's a lot of land around this, this hotel that they could do something similar to what we do here with Camp All-American and serve these families and for a church to operate out of that facility in a place where in that entire western quarter of Poland there is not one evangelical church. And this would bring one church, at least one, to that place. Now, this is just one example. If you go out there and you talk to these various missionaries that we have here, they all have stuff like this. Incredible opportunities of the kingdom of God going forward and God opening doors through your generosity for the kingdom to go forth. I want to share this with you briefly here. In our lunch on Thursday with Andrew, uh, he said, I want you to have something. And um, he told me about this flag. This is a Ukrainian flag. And please hear me. This is because I know I'll get emails. This is not a political statement. Okay? This is representing people made in the image of God who are perishing and who desperately need Jesus. He gave me this flag and he said... Uh, this flag, and I don't know if I'm holding it the right way or not, I can't tell, but maybe it's this way. Ukrainian flag is signed, mostly, most of these signatures here are Ukrainian soldiers. And you'll see many of them have their, their uh, squadron numbers and whatnot on there, their units. Andrew mentioned, he said, uh, he was told that he doesn't know how many, but some who have signed this flag have since perished in the war. All of these people that have signed this represent people who are separated from their families. Ministries like Andrew's and others have the opportunity to house their wives and their children and care for them and love them, not knowing if they'll ever see their husbands again. To be able to, yes, meet their needs in tangible ways, physically, emotionally, trauma training is one of the things they're doing as well. But to share the gospel with them to teach them that even in the midst of catastrophe and all kinds of human brokenness, there is a God who is near to the brokenhearted. We get to be a part of things like that. We get to go to places like Poland and meet these people that aren't just names on a flag, but represent real people with real brokenness and real need of a very real Jesus. I want to commend you for being a church that engages in things like this, but I also want to encourage you to go even further, to go, to give, to send, to pray, to be about God's work in the nations. Romans 10, 14 and 15 says, how will they know? unless they are sent, unless someone comes and preaches to them. And then he says this, quoting the Old Testament, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good 
news. I pray for every single one of us that in whatever capacity God calls us to, go give, send, or pray, that we would be able to say, I'm being faithful, and by God's grace, my feet are beautiful unto his glory. Father, we give you this time, but not just this time this morning, we give you our hearts that you would make them like your heart. Lord, we want to be like you. Forgive us of all the ways in which we have sought to not embrace your heart and not be like you. We thank you that even in our floundering and faithlessness, you are so very faithful. You pursue us relentlessly and you don't give up on us and you make us more and more into your image through Jesus. We pray for all of our partners, all the incredible things that you're doing throughout the world. Continue to bless them, anoint them, empower and strengthen them. Give them energy, perseverance to continue in the work that can be so very hard. And we look forward to that day, that Revelation 7 day, when we are gathered around your throne with people from every tongue and tribe and nation. We see it now. We long for it in reality. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.